Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. How are you? I'm good. I'm tired. You know, I, I just got the kids some food and had to situate them. So thanks for holding out for me a little bit. Oh my gosh, no problem. So I'm super, like, I'm really excited because I really want to hear about your projects and how the, everything has come to be. So I have Gianfranco Fernandez Ruiz. That's right. That's a and long one. Yes. Well, mine's like my whole name is is a little bit longer too, but I abbreviate. That's, that's where all the cheese man comes in. Yeah, yeah. But you're a filmmaker, which I'm super excited because I know you have something coming out. We actually were in the same clubhouse room, which is how we connected. Really? I think that was how we connected was on clubhouse. Was it not? Was it somewhere else? Well, I'm not sure. It, it could have been my casting director. He, and he, he like manages a lot of things. Maybe. That, that boy is on clubhouse 99.9% of the time. Then maybe so, that's what it was. Uh, no, I'm sure it was. I'm sure yeah. it was a clubhouse thing. It just wasn't me, for sure. Okay, see? But you know what? I've been meeting so many people through Clubhouse. I'm trying to get this. It's like crazy. It's like one of the most powerful tools. You know, whoever came up with You know what I that, really... Yes, and so I'm trying to get the right angle here. You know what I really am enjoying about Clubhouse? There we go. Oh, there we go. The thing that I'm mostly enjoying about Clubhouse is the fact that you actually get to know people. Yeah. Like, it's not just... Instagram's cool, right? It's Instagram, Facebook, it's all cool. However, you just don't get the, there we go. Oh, there we go. It was just too low. You just don't get the same interaction that you do in Clubhouse. Like you can actually hear somebody, have a conversation with somebody, get to know their vibe in a way that you don't do in any other social media platform. Right. So that's what I really enjoy about Clubhouse. So. It's been really interesting. I have friends that have found mentorship through there. I have found people that have like, learn to collaborate through, through that platform. Instagram and like Twitter, they're obviously, they have their uses on um, Facebook too, but it's, it's just nice to be able to one tap, click something and you're in, you're in a room and you can have a conversation, you know? I mean, I've, had, I've been in there a couple of times and usually I'm like talking to people from college that I like never spoke to. Oh, um, really? Oh, yeah. That's so cool. That's so interesting. So I... Want to get into your bio, but before we get into the chisme, we always start with the wine. So I don't know if you're partaking or not. I'll partake with the with the fake wine. Open that door, my kids are going to come running. So I will just I'll just I'll sit right here. (laughs) So I have my 2017 Pinot Noir from Voces Cellars. So I really like to focus on. I mean, I drink all kinds of wine, but. This, I really love. We have these monthly virtual wine tastings that focuses very specifically on Latino-owned wine brands. Mm. So this is one of them that we had. So I got to give you like the full effect, okay? Here I have my little decanter. Wow. There we go. That is the full effect right there. And then I got to give you my cheers. There was a lot more in there. There there was. Nothing in there. (laughs) Okay. It's because I had to double up on my podcast interviews today. 
So I actually had one earlier. <laughs> so I've already had She's like in wine. different clothes. If you see that podcast and she's wearing something different, you call that bluff. Oh, I didn't even change. Like that's how <laughs> that, I didn't even bother changing. <laughs> <clears throat> so salud with my sound effects. Ready? Salud. You got to do it. You got to figure out how to do it. We can't cheers and we can't cheers in person. So you got to figure out another way to do it. Right. You're a filmmaker, you know this. <laughs> what is, wait, Foley, right? It's, uh, I'm, a, I'm my own Foley artist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ednigotti chocolate. There it is. If you got, if oh, there you go. You know what? I'm not, I don't like chocolate. Okay. First of all, we have, <laughs> I am chocolate in and of myself. Right? I didn't say I didn't like chocolate people. I just said, <laughs> <laughs> I just said, I don't like the, t- like, there's something about, I think because in America, we have a lot of fake chocolate, right? Yeah, and it's the smell. Oh my, I can't, I, the smell is the worst part for me, but I also don't like caramel. I don't like hazelnut. I'm just more of a savory, salty, savory person. Oh, well, that makes sense. I, because I, I'm I very mean, sweet already. <laughs> See now you're glad that your agent like that he booked you because you're like oh this is already awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a blast. I'm having a good time. Yeah. So I want to get into your bio because I already like the there was a question that I initially already had. So you are a Salt Lake City based Afro Latinx writer director, and you say whose emphasis on character marks culture as integral to identity, but second to story. The first thing I was like, you're Dominicano. How does a Dominicano end up in Salt Lake City, Utah? Listen, I'm going to give you the, the very true and very short version. Of this yes, I want to hear it. <laughs> so I, was, I lived in North Carolina. I'm from Boston. Okay. I lived in North Carolina. I was married. And then one day I woke up and we moved to Salt Lake. And then we got divorced. That's the story. That's the short version of it. But that, you, that one is, day you did, like, literally, you just had an epiphany, let's move to Salt Lake City, Utah, of all uh, places? So her parents, all, all of us are from Boston, and she's Dominican too, so we're just a big old Dominican family. And um, her parents had moved here because they had a grandkid that uh, was born here. Does that make sense? That makes sense now. So the, yeah, moved the here. abuelos moved to where the kids are. Exactly. Well, we followed the grandparents, what happened. Yes. And I, and then we got divorced and then we just got, we just stayed here. I don't know. I just need to ask. I mean, I do have, I know the Latino community is really growing in that area in Utah. Oh, yeah. I have friends who have family and stuff there. And so it's to me, but I grew up in San Diego. Like this is where I'm from. That's where I grew up. That's where, I mean, I lived in Dallas for a while, but came back to San Diego. So I don't think of Salt Lake City, right? Don't think of Utah as like the next up and coming Latino community. So I know there's something there. Go tell, so, spill, spill the cheese, mate. Come on. Well, okay. So here, first of all, I don't want to spill this too much. You know, I don't know how many followers you got going on, but <laughs> I don't want too many people coming up over here. The reality is, is that now with like inflation and everything that's been going on, I'm trying to get crazy, overly political. Utah has become kind of an interesting place for price points for you know raising families and you know how we are we, you know we gravitate to them places that are going to mm-hmm. be like lower not always but a lot of times we're we're finding ourselves in in disenfranchised positions 
And in those situations, we tend to flock to where things are going to be cheapest. So where am I going to be able to find a good job where I can also pay very little rent? You know, I'm going to be moving off to LA in August, for example. And my rent situation is going to drastically change. Drastically. Oh, for sure. And for not even like a fraction of what I have. So I'm talking for 750 you know, square feet, probably going to have to pay upwards of like $1,500, you know, maybe $1,600. Where are you looking in LA? Are you saying there's cheaper places? No, I didn't. I didn't know there was such thing as fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars. Oh, you said it's a cheaper place. I You know, I've been paying attention. You know, anyway. I'm just like, really? Where are you finding these these <laughs> yeah. places? People want to know. I know for seven hundred fifty <laughs> square feet. You know, it's not too bad over here, though. And this is the difference. If you live in Utah, you're having like two thousand square feet for the same price. Oh yeah, but then you have to remember you're in Utah. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, there is a trade, but things will like slowly, you know, like I think over the course of the last week, I saw like seven Dominicans. I said, how in the hell are all the, like, who is out there like spreading the word? Cause I need to find out. We were like all at some taco stand. And I said, I mean, I knew they were Dominican. You just have to ask cause you're so unused to seeing Dominicans, you know, right. you're in Boston or New York or Philadelphia, you just you just guess, like, ah, Dominican probably, you know, probably Brazilian or Dominican, or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Here, I'm like, that person is 100% Dominican, but I got to ask because I'm so unused to it. And then they go, yeah, I'm Dominican. All of a sudden, we're like sitting there at this taco stand. Like, How do we get here together? You know what I mean? Of all places in the United States, this is a very rare and strange place to kind of fall upon as Dominican. Anyway. So you think that there, you guys are like the Latino community is building their own community there in the in Salt Lake City in the surrounding oh, yeah. areas? Yeah, I would say yeah, definitely surrounding like Ogden area, Logan area. Weirdly, Logan has a lot of Dominicans, uh, Puerto Ricans that are going over there, and it's a college town. Salt Lake has like a lot of Latinidad. Probably the most that I've seen is in West Valley. Mm-hmm. That already had like a built-in like Mexican you know, culture base. Yeah. Now it's getting mixed up with a lot of other things. We've got like, you know, the Chapinos that are coming. We've got the Hondureños that are coming. Um, we've got like the restaurants, the Catrachos that, that are that are here that are representing that, you know, Hondureño culture. And so it's interesting to see that melting pot kind of happen as you're here. You know, do you feel I like it's imagine. being embraced or do you feel like there's being pushed back in regards to that changing? Because the people that are, like kind of already there. It's not, I mean, it's known as a Mormon state, right? I mean, that's what people think of when they think of Salt Lake City, when they think of Utah, they think of very conservative, very Mormon, very, let's be honest, very white. So is do you feel like it's being embraced or do you feel like there's been some pushback? It's really hard. You know, I think that we live in like a world where things, they change gradually but then when there's some some kind of like event in history, there's a drastic shift in, in how the pendulum swings. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, for example, in Utah, there was this, or even in America, I should say, you know, in the height of the civil rights movement in the 60s, all of a sudden, everywhere where like blackness was A, B, and C, there had to be this sudden forceful change 
with how we engaged with blackness, at least in the United States where the rest of the world was trying to catch up. That's not to say that the United States was ready to catch up, right? There were a lot of- they still have, They're still not ready to say yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But the country itself forced some kind of movement to occur. And then, you know, that thing constantly is restarting and reigniting every 30 or 40 years where we're facing the same kind of like progressive standing movement that uh, pushes us into the next generation. And so I think there's an acceptance there. And then something culturally begins to happen after 15, 20 years where we go back down like a certain route that we don't want to go down. And then, you know, 20 years later, we're back at having another moment. You know, it's always like three steps forward, four steps back. Three steps. It's like we can't catch up. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about your work, you say your work is about stories that are a bright mix of beats, verb, verve, and rhythm of the tribal and Dominican native tambora drum and the urban percussion of the 90s boom pop that you for you film is about discovery catharsis and decolonization which i feel like kind of we're already getting into by this conversation right so do you focus a lot on because i want to find out how you even got into film like what fascinated you but when i was reading this particular part of your bio it was really interesting to me in regards to it was you were so specific in regards to what your vision is So I guess my question is like, if you could expand a little bit on kind of what that means, does that mean you're mostly telling Dominican stories or what is like, because it was very, very specific in regards to that. So I just want to kind of get your feel in regards to what that means. I have interesting ideas on the story, you know, and I, I have like some sympathizers that very much agree with way that I approach story and then I have some people that are very much against the way that I decide to approach story and there's no one way right mm -hmm. there's no like uh, this box it's like right it's interesting to kind of think about again culture and people and the way that they view entertainment you know you're gonna have like the people that love having you know their television and their BET and um and kind of giving creating a space or POC or be you know BIPOC individuals, Latinx folk to have kind of like their own spot. Uh, when I was growing up, there was the I channel or the international channel, which by the way, the international channel was very much a Japanese channel. Was I was like, about to say, wasn't that like mostly like most Asian, yeah, Asian, yeah. yeah, like it was Malaysia, Korean, and Japanese, right. I think, right? Yeah. If I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. We're up in the same little, little time span. Yeah. Um, but that was definitely, you know, kind of it. And people like that. People like this idea of being able to give a home to all of these things. And I think for immigrants, that's definitely an important thing. It becomes something else when you start thinking about, okay, Black entertainment television, for an example. Those people, as me too, we speak English, like the rest of the United States. So to have this dedicated channel, while I think it is important for their voice, it starts to feed this narrative. It starts to say that our stories belong in a certain place and are not mainstream, that they're very specifically, they belong in this like this channel. Um, and so I, my approach has, has always been to kind of go, our culture is integral to our characters, to us as people, but those things don't have to carry narratives. They don't have to carry stories. Um, will they find themselves in stories? Absolutely. Will they 
weave themselves into the narrative or we start to hear Spanish or, you know, some slang, some Ebonics maybe. Yeah, totally. And I think that there's space for that. They belong there. But if we start to make it where the story is only about this kid who wants to be a rapper, but he also wants to help his mom. And the only way that he can think about doing it and making it work is by slinging dope or by selling drugs on the corner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the story unravels. More and more bad things happen. And the kid is like finding success, but he's finding himself deeper in this world of drugs. And that's helping him fund his dreams for, for being a rapper and help his mom at home. But it's also increasing his, the threat on his life. I mean, I just made that up. But how many times have we seen that? You know what I'm saying? Honestly, I was thinking of the movie and all of a sudden the name slipped my mind. The one with Tupac in like the early 90s of him and his friends like getting into this. Oh my gosh, why can I not remember the name? And I was literally just thinking of this movie the other day and I told my friend the name of it. And now I cannot remember it. Watch, I'm going to remember it's like really randomly and everything. Is it Juicy? Juice, yes. Ju- juice. It was juice. Is it juice or juicy? I think it's juice. I think it's juice. That movie where they kind of get into this like deeper and deeper and deeper and yeah, deeper. Yeah. yeah. And look, there's a, like, I get it. There's a spot for that. Like, I'm not trying to remove those kinds of stories entirely. We There's a fan base. You know, the market wants what the market wants. But at the same time, if we, if we focus so entirely on telling those kinds of stories, then we start to pigeonhole ourselves. Right. And, you know, we can't be foolish here. There are two things that are happening. Number one, we're imagining that, like, this is the story. This is the authenticity that we're looking for. So we tell it because we think it's the real thing that we experience in, in the United States and in this life. But also, on another level, the marketing execs at these massive companies in the industry, they're paying attention to what we are tuning into. And the more we watch the same things, the more they continue to say, that is what Black people want to watch. That is what Latinx people want to watch. That and is then what we can't Asian complain that we're being not represented in other ways. Right. I mean, obviously with something like BET, you have, there's definitely a need for it because in general media, a lot of things are not represented. So sometimes there's a space that needs to be represented. I've noticed that they've, like, I've seen Selena on BET before. Yeah. I'm like, oh, Selena. And then I'm like, oh, But I know that there's like, I've been seeing, and I don't know if you've seen this or not. I've been seeing this swell of people appreciate Selena, but they want other stories to be told. Like people appreciate, she's so loved in, you know, our community within the Mexicano community, actually within the Latinx community. But there's so many people that are like, but there's other stories that can be told. Why are we only focusing on her? So using that in the same way, I get totally get what you're saying, because then you have something like Hentified. Love Hentified. I love that show. Yeah, I, I devoured it. Oh my gosh. I need to find a way to get them on my podcast. I want them on here because I just love it. But it's not my story. You know, I'm a second gen, San Diego born, Spanish is not my first language type of, I'm a, you know, light skinned Latina So my story is very, very different. And I don't feel like my, like, I would say the closest thing that probably came close to what I felt like was Cristela. And that was a TV show only last in one season on ABC. You know who Cristela Alonso is? She's a comedian and she had her own show for like one season. Hers was based out of Dallas. I actually lived in Dallas, even though that's not where I was from, but 
it was really about her navigating this corporate world of trying to be, you know, working at a law firm and doing these things. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is something that I can relate to. But then the ratings weren't there. And why are, why are they not there? Was it, you know, there's obviously multitudes of things, but you have certain stories that just aren't being shared because we're not gravitating towards those. And then we have to figure, why are we not gravitating to those stories? And then we complain that we're not being represented. I totally understand what you're saying. And then I'm trying to see the other side of it as well. Oh, no. I mean, I, mean, I, I completely understand the, the side of the, that doesn't sympathize with what I say, um, because they're in, they're in a space of going, we need stories for us, by us. And I think that that's very important. I think that Agreed. That's incredibly important for like, specifically because there are certain stories that you read or that you watch on television and you go, this is me. This is my experience. And that's very important, you know. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Me. Did you know that you can experience many of the wines I taste here on the Wine and Cheese Me podcast? I'm sure you're aware of how important it is to me to highlight wine brands that are owned by those in the Latinx community. That is why the last Wednesday of each month, we host a virtual wine tasting featuring Latinx owned wine brands. Whether you choose to partake in the tasting, or just want to learn something about these vintners. If you enjoy wine, you will love these virtual events. Please visit thewineandcheesemetpodcast.com slash events for more information. Let's support our community and support these small vintners. First time I read um, Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, that's a Juno Diaz book. The first time I read The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo, who's a Dominican writer. I was able to kind of tap into those uh, works and go, oh my gosh, this is me. This is my experience, you know, coming up as a first generation Dominican American, understanding like what it was to be in a, in a household that had very wildly different standards for me than perhaps, you know, my cousin who was, who's a woman and, and being raised in the same home. Right. And not not having that regular nuclear family, but this kind of strange one. These things have such an important place in storytelling. Um, what I say is we, we have to come to a point where we marry the two things. Where we say, yeah. you know, these things that represent us are key and they continue to represent us on screen. But if we make it only about that thing, if the thing somehow continues to revolve around gentrification or immigration, then we are putting ourselves in this world where we can't get out of. You know, at that point, we are no longer taking risks where we can be the protagonists of other kinds of films. Now, here's a big example of this. Very recently, and I mean, they're going to come out with a sequel because it did so well, but uh, Spider-Man had an animated version. Oh, Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse. And, um, and in Into the Spider-Verse, they have this kid, Miles Morales, who is half Black, and half Puerto Rican, right? So for all intents and purposes, he is an Afro-Latinx young man that lives in, it's not Queens, but wherever it is that he lives in New York. Mm -hmm. And that's so dope, right? Now, do we understand that he's Latino? Yeah, his mom says like, you know, okay, mijo, I love you, you know, gives him a kiss. Uh, do we know that he's black? I mean, absolutely, there's no way around that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Now. How much of his culture was finding its way into that story? 
how much were we dealing with like drug dealers and immigration and yada, yada, yada that we always see in your typical story that involves, you know, black or Latinx characters. It was a minimalistic part of the story. The story was about a young man that was going to become Spider-Man. And the representation was different. It was not the one that we see all the time. And that's an important story to tell because yeah. that's a story we don't see, right? That's a story that is constantly, constantly, constantly being thrown at us and we don't see ourselves in those stories. We see a white Superman and a white Batman and a white Iron Man and a white this and that and the other. We never see black or Latinx characters that are taking the mantle of like these larger representative roles. And I think that that was able to tell a, a really interesting story focusing on a character that had dual heritages both Black and Latinx descent, and not make it about the fact that he's Black or Latinx. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I even see that in commercials now. I forget what commercial this was. It was It was, It was. was a car commercial for sure. I don't know if it was Chevy or Ford or what. I don't know. And it's the Latino family that's getting a new car. Mm. And the white family across the street's like, Oh, look, the Rodriguez's or the Hernandez's, I don't know. You know, it was like a common Latino last name because it's been a few years since that commercial has been on. Got a new car. And it was, but it had, it literally had nothing to do with anything else, but that it was just the Latino family was the one getting the new car. And the white people were like, oh my gosh, look, they're getting a new car. How cool. Like, uh, like they were the ones being envious of it. But I remember that because the first thing I thought was, I've never seen that. I've never seen that. And like I said, it's faded because it's been a few years, but I do remember seeing that and being like, this is awesome because it had nothing to do with anything else. It was just a regular commercial that could have been, that was on TV. And I love when I hear them integrate, like there's that, is it the Cox or Spectrum with the little kid thinking, oh, we won. And the mom sees it and she's like, I'm mi amor, this is fake. And I'm like, oh my gosh, instantly you know it's a Latino family and it's just a regular commercial. So I see that being integrated more because mm-hmm. our buying power is so big. And people, and you can, I think you can also tell when you have black and brown faces behind the scenes helping to make the decisions versus when nobody of color is in there making the decisions because you have something like a commercial for Cox, like, oh, you can put your parental controls on. And it's literally her just saying, ay, mi amor, like this is fake versus making it something like a caricature of ourselves. Right. That's really the key to me. You know, I'm not trying to like isolate black and brown. Right. That's just where there's the least amount of representation. Hollywood's been picking up and they're figuring out like, okay, we're going to get a lot of you know, Asian representation, and they've been doing great at doing that. I mean, it's not like the full spectrum of the Asian representation, but um, they've got a lot more going on than they might have in, you know, Pacific Islander and Asian uh, persuasion. That's really great that they're doing that. Oh, absolutely. Especially for what we represent within the population, like what we represent in the population and our representation in, in media is ridiculous what that ratio is Mm -hmm. what brought you to film like what was like were you fascinated by film growing up what decided like what was the the driver so you wanted to be a filmmaker I was an only child on my mom's side on my dad's side I got mad kids I was about to say you're the only child (laughs) 
I, but I grew up that way. I grew up like an only child. I had my cousin in my house, you know? She was like my sister, you know, how in Latino families, sometimes yeah. you end up having like your grandparents raising some grand. Oh, well, when my grandma died, my grandpa moved in with us. So, I mean, we yeah. were multi-generational households. So, you know, it was me, my grandparents, my mom, and my cousin all in one household doing kind of the family thing. But my mom was like often gone. She worked like, I don't know, 70, 80 hours a week. She worked in like at this place called Furniture Mart. And, uh, and she just sold furniture. And the only day that she had off was Sundays, mostly. Sometimes she still had to work on Sundays. But most Sundays she had off. And, um, you know, for her, my mom, she was kind of raising the kid, kind of not, right? Like a lot of the duties were falling on my grandparents. They were old. It wasn't their time anymore to, to be raising a kid. Anyway, long story short, my mom would take me on Sundays, um, which was her only day, being, you know, as tired as she was. Um, to the movie theaters because I'm sure in her mind she was like I'm gonna get some shut eye this kid's gonna be entertained for a couple <laughs> hours and I won't have to worry about anything um, and so that was just that was kind of the state of my like youth was I went to the movies every single Sunday we had pizza right afterwards at this place called Pizzeria Uno does Chicago style pizza uh, injustice not just I think they were a chain out I think they were a chain uh, all across the U.S. right I remember yeah, them yeah, they're still around are they? Um, I don't know how many there are left. I know they're still in Boston somehow. But um, I, we went to Pizza Rio no, every single Sunday and then we got like a milkshake. But that was like, that was religion for me. That was like church and all these kinds of things that maybe you know, other kids might have and I didn't have. All I had was this experience that was nostalgic for me where I would go to the movies with my mom on Sundays. So I think it was a, it was a natural path for me in second grade um, when I started really picking up, picking up on writing and reading, and and that's really where it started was this love for television and films um, because it brought me closer to my mom because it brought me closer to that time that we had together, and then taking these ideas that I'd get from the movies and going home and writing them down, as, you know, for days, just writing notebooks full of like random ideas about who knows what kind of ridiculous story at the time, Power Ranger spinoffs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Crazy, ridiculous stories. So what was like the genre that you most often were drawn to as a kid? My, yeah, I, my like idol when I was a kid was Jim Carrey. Oh, okay. I was that kid that was like, any chance I got, I was like. You were quoting the mask religiously. All, all the time. All the time. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. There was no way around it. You know, I was sitting there saying, somebody stop me all the time. <laughs> All the time. You I know? thought you were going to be like, smoking. <laughs> that too. You know, I was the kid that was like putting my hand in my shirt and going like, boom, you know, that the heartbeat thing. I, just, <laughs> I thought it was all like very cool. So I was a big fan of Jim Carrey as a kid. And then, you know, I started, the older I got, the more I got into other things. I was really into like Bob Zemeckis. Or, you know, that, he's yeah, a yeah, yeah. I was like really into Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Back to the Future. I like love those films. And again, you know, going back to our original conversation, when you think like Latino films or, you know, films that have, hold other kinds of representation, how many of them can you think of that have like the kind of legendary status of, you know, Back to the Future or Who Framed Roger Rabbit? There aren't very many of them. Scarface, but he's not even Latino. Al Pacino isn't even Latino. And it's all about drugs. That's all about drugs. So, you know what I'm saying? 
a fun movie like Back to the Future that just has like this eternal value that you can just watch it every day of the week and you never get bored of it. That's the film that I, I always wanted to see growing up. I was like, where's somebody that looks like me, but in Back to the Future? Where's somebody that looks like me, but, you know, is in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So the seed was planted then. Yeah. I mean, because I loved watching. I mean, anytime I could see something that would reflect, but I agree. Like, I, again, with my grandpa, he worked in the citrus fields. My grandma worked in a cannery. Me and my mom were having this conversation the other day. My mom is the youngest of 10. So by the time she was born, the areas that my grandparents would move into were very, like, my mom said, I was just thinking about it. She never thought about it before this conversation. And this happened just a few days ago. She was like, I realized that we would always move into white areas. And I was like the only Mexican kid in the, you know, there might be a couple others, but she's like, I didn't even realize that because our family is Mexican. So at home, it was always, you know, like that. But as soon as she stepped out, she was the only one. It was really interesting to hear that. But me growing up, the people I was always gravitated to were other POCs. Right. Like my friends were Mexican, uh, Filipino, Vietnamese. Like those were the people I mostly gravitated to. And when I would see somebody in like a blood in, blood out or mi familia or anything like that, I was so excited to see other brown people but it also wasn't a reflection of my life at all. Because again, I'm second generation. I'm a light-skinned Latina. My first language is not Spanish. I didn't have a lot of these challenges, but I still loved seeing that there was people who looked similar to me on screen. And so when you're saying this, like, you're right. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm trying to like rack my brain of movies or shows that weren't in Spanish that I could reflect on and say, oh yeah, but I can't, I can't think of that at all. There were very, very specific genres that were fed to us as here is your representation and that's it. And I think that's why those certain movies, those certain films have become like so cultish because that's all so many of us in my generation saw. Yeah. You're giving me so much to think about as you're saying this, because I never thought of it in that way. It's a hard thing to like wake up and realize, you know what I'm saying? All of my favorite films, I always have like a friend that like likes to make fun of me, you know, say like, who are all your favorite actors? And uh, the first time he ever asked me, I, you know, all of my favorite actors at the time were white, every single one of them. Basically, it was like no POC in that list. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. There are no POC in that list. I wouldn't say it's for lack of trying, you know, I think that there's just not enough to choose from. Um, so I'm obviously going to look at the talent, the actors that um, that are in my favorite things, right? Um, I'm not going to just pick like a my favorite black actor and put him on a list just because he's black, even though he's not in any of the movies that I love. That's like loyalty for sure, but that's not true. It's not honesty. So how can I make it where kids can be truly honest about their favorite movies and their favorite actors? Um, that happen to be Black or Latinx or in the AAPI um, or gay or, you know, whatever it is mm-hmm. that they want to be able to go like, I'm inspired by this character um, or by that character. 
know, before we, we had like such limited palette for us to, to really choose from. So who become the heroes all of a sudden, you know? If our heroes tend to be drug dealers or tend to be like musicians, what's gonna be the outcome? You know, what's the output then from that community? And I'll tell you very clearly, it's not gonna be, you know, that we're getting engineers and rocket scientists. And that's not gonna be the protagonist that we create in the real world. Right. I feel like this generation though is definitely changing that, oh, right? In regards to what they want to achieve and why they want to achieve it. Because like I told you, I had a, a podcast interview right before this one. And we were talking about, I was saying how I never had te- other, I think I can count on two fingers, the amount of Latino teachers that I had right. all growing up. And I grew up in San Diego. Crazy. Like, hello, I grew up in San Diego and I can only name two Latino teachers that I've ever had. So I feel like there's so many of us that are like, okay, you know what? We're not going to let that happen to the next generation. We're going to make sure that there's something that they can see that they can say, you know what? She can do that or he can do that. I can do that. They can do that. I can do that. We're lucky. Yeah, we're lucky in that way. We definitely have like a much, my kids have a much brighter future. I have two children and they have a much brighter future than than I did at their age and that's not to say you know for lack of ability because I I have a lot in my life I'm I grew up with a lot in my life I was very blessed myself but in terms of like representation in terms of what they'll see on television and what represents them specifically it's a whole new world oh yeah tell me you have a film coming out in June right is it in June that it's coming out so it's not releasing in June It'll probably release next June. Okay, it's next June. Shooting in June, yeah. Okay, right. it's starting to shoot. Called Sabor. Wait, Sabor. <laughs> Tell me, because I want to hear about your other work as well, but since it's coming as shooting, I want to hear, so for those who don't know, Sabor is flavor in Spanish. Flavor. <laughs> flavor. <laughs> sabor. <laughs> but no, the way you spell it is with three R's. So it's sabor. <laughs> so tell me about what this is. Are you, were you the writer? Are you the director? Like, what are your roles in this film? And what is this film about? Yeah, indie films are very funny. So, you know, I, I wear a lot of different hats along with my amazing production team. I am a writer. I have a I have a writer that worked on it as well with me, and we work on everything together. So he's he's my writer die with my my you know my right hand man, and you know sometimes I'm I'm filling in some some ideas that he might have. Other times he's filling in ideas that I might have. Um, Zach, man, so a little shout out to him. But anyway, he and I wrote Sabor together, and I'm I'm directing it. Of course, uh, he's producing it with me, and like I said, a really great production team. It's this child that's been born out of all of the things that we're talking about. I mean, we've got a protagonist who longs to be on television, who longs to be a star um, for, you know, beautiful reasons, you know, from her childhood um, experiences that she might, you know, really want that. And only she's got a very tight situation with her family and it's just her and her sister and her uncle. And I think that what we're taught a lot of times in Latino families is to keep our integrity you know, not let up no matter what. So it, it becomes an, incre- an incredibly- And get a quote unquote stable job. Yeah, yeah. 
definitely get a stable job. That's definitely like, that's one of the pressures that they give us. But they also tell you, if you're in a situation where you have to give up A, B, and C, you know, you pull yourself right out of that, you know, unless it's like, I mean, the situation has got to be dire, but (laughs) for for anything else to, to kind of occur. But if it's just like a pure, like, hey, you're in that work and they're asking me to do something that you're not okay with, you pull out of that. And I would like to think that everybody's families are like that, but I know from personal experience that Latinos are very much like, you know, don't compromise on what your your moral standings are. So for integrity's sake, you make sure that you feel safe in, um, in whatever environment you're in. Anyway, that's a very long-winded way of saying our character has a very difficult time when she's on the set of this really big commercial and uh, finds out that she's shucking some not so flavorful material about her, I shouldn't say her people, but about Latinx people in general. Kind of goes into like this very strange uh, David Lynchian nightmare from there. Oh my gosh. Okay, so for people who don't know who David Lynch is, I think of Twin Peaks. That's the first thing that I that's right. (laughs) I know what I'm talking about. Hey, I'm a little surprised actually. I'm good. I'm glad I'm surprising you. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Did Richard tell you about David Lynch? No, I know who David Lynch is. I know. I didn't know you were going to say that. I'm excited. <laughs> I think it's great. She knows about movies, y'all. I do. I'm that person where I will see something and I may not have ever seen the movie. People don't start describing it and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's this movie. They're like, oh, did you see it? I'm like, no, I haven't seen it. It's on my list. <laughs> like, I grew up wanting to be an entertainment reporter. I retain a lot of like that type of information. And when I hear entertainment reporters saying the wrong thing, I get so mad. Like, that ain't it. I'm like, come on. I'm not even in the industry. And Wait, that's right. so wrong. Yeah. Like, I'm that person. I get really irritated. <laughs> no, hey, I get it. People that are passionate about the things, they get real passionate about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just like, I will give that side eye look to the TV and be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, <that was laughs> so tell people who David Lynch is, like, because he's a very film noir, like, kind of ringing that, like, Explain, because you can do a lot better job than I can in regards to who David Lynch is and his type of... Maybe maybe you might do a better job than me, but I'll do it. I'll I'll drop a little quick David Lynch line. David Lynch is a legendary filmmaker. He primarily works in this really experimental world of cinema, but he, he kind of broke in in a very, like, commercial way, which is very interesting again, with respect to him, because I love him, but he makes very strange cinema. Very, very strange. It is very film noir. It's also very creepy. There's a dramatist kind of vibe where everything feels like a soap opera all the time. But then there's like this rated R, like horror aspect. That's And the cinematography is always very dark. It's really dark, very visceral. Yeah. Yeah, If you could eat it, it would feel real chewy. Like if you could eat it, you just like... Like Shoes that's like wet. Like wet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know why that came to mind, but that just came to mind. Yeah, oh, that's David Lynch. He's, he's, you know, go watch Mulholland Drive if you haven't seen it. It's like one of the greatest films of all time, they say. Or watch Twin Peaks. The first two seasons are very strange, but that third season is it makes it all worth it. I've never seen Twin Peaks. It's weird. 
<laughs> I've never but seen I it. I love it though. <laughs> but I love it though. Okay, so you go into that spiral once she figures out like I am not represented. The people that I'm representing and I'm who I'm supposed to be representing is not yeah, she's, she's kosher with me. The community, and she's like, you know, like, where do I stand with this? You know, I, we're close to an eviction, but and I do it for the paycheck. So your previous work, do you follow different ones? You follow a, Do you follow a certain recipe for your work or do you try and bring something out with everything that you do? Yeah, I think there's something like really different with each and every script that I make. And sometimes they they have Latinx characters, like this one has Latinx characters. They're Puerto Rican and, you know, we've got a really widely kind of beautiful spectrum of talent, our actors. But um, works that I've like done in, in my writing and even that we've shot, they're usually centered around last film I did was uh it had it had everything to do with the one child law policy in China Ooh. you know it was very much about this Chinese family and their experience with one child law what's the name of that it's called no rain nor do no rain nor do as nor do okay I'm gonna make sure we need to get a I want to make sure I get a list of your films so we can put yeah. them yeah. out oh. on the yeah, yeah so we can make sure we we let people know because so important. I think a lot of people don't even realize that there's a one-child law in China. And well, there isn't any. When there was, a lot of times families would kill their little girls because they wanted a little boy. It was so important to have a little boy. Yes, there was a lot of like strange intricacies with like the whole one-child law policy. It's very interesting. It affected one of these very odd things where it had a very positive effect on the population of China for so many years. So obviously on a higher level, they knew what they were trying to like accomplish and figuring out how to do that um, in the best way. So there was definitely a reason for doing it, but there were really long-term negative effects um, on the people. Again, also positive effects, like women were thriving during one-child law policy, thriving, but families were heavily affected. Anyway, this I don't wanna bore people with the history of one-child law policy, coming from my mouth, but it is very interesting. You should go and take a, a peek at, uh, at your history books, go and study it for a little bit and watch No Rain or Do. It's a beautiful film about one child law policy. So you said one of your favorite directors was Robert Zemeckis. Have you ever done anything like that? Because he's obviously very kind of sci-fi. Like you said, you had some Back to the Future. Did he do Batteries Not Included or was that Steven Spielberg? Batteries Not Included... That was not Steven Spielberg, and that was not Robert Zemeckis. I'm going to have to look at who it was, because some for some reason I was thinking it was one of them. But, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, you have those types of films. So have you, or is that something that you aspire to kind of be able to bring some of that futuristic, very light, funny, yet futuristic type of tone to any of your movies or any of your work? Yeah, there's a piece that I'm currently working on right now. I probably won't. I'm talking, this is like five or six years down the road, but it is an Afro-futuristic film uh, that feels a lot like Blade Runner, but has like the humor of say, I mean, I don't want to say of Back to the Future. It's lighter, you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. anymore, that's what cinema is, is. There's this lens of like humor that we, we bring into any dramatic or any 
episodic. We're, we're really just sinking our teeth into wanting to smile while we're crying. Um, so things like even, you know, the most cynical of shows like uh, The Handmaid's Tale right now that's on the movie. Damn, that show's crazy. But that- I haven't seen that either. Just, and it's, that is honestly, okay, let me tell you the only reason I haven't seen The Handmaid's Tale. I'm sure it's really good, but I feel like I'm gonna get too emotionally invested and pissed off. Oh, you will. That I'm like, I can't watch it. Like right now I'm like, mm, especially during the four years that we just got out of, I was like, hell no, I cannot watch it during this time. It's a very difficult show to watch. It's still difficult, but they have these little humorous moments. They don't sprinkle them in often, but they sprinkle them in because uh, that's today's culture. We like a little smirk, a little smile every now and then, mm -hmm. um, no matter if it's a if it's a really dark drama or if it's a if it's a dark comedy you know what i mean even if it's a horror i mean we've got jordan peele that makes oh it. my gosh well you also heard chris rock is bringing back the saw series yeah spiral yeah. yeah so he wants to bring some humor into that as right. well right. so see i know what's going on <laughs> girl i'll see you what's up <laughs> yeah. that's the vibe right now it's I think being Dominican, you're going to find humor in any one of my works, no matter what it is. Noreen Ordu was a little more, was a little heavy. What are some of the other things that you have done, some of the other works? And how can people find what you've done? So in terms of like actual film, which everything that we've worked on to this point has been on actual film on celluloid, like Super 16 film, that stuff you can find on Vimeo. Just type in my name, John Pablo Fernandez. You're not going to find it on my page. You'll find um, I worked on a project called Fender. It was uh, kind of like brand content. We did No Rain or Do, which hasn't released yet. We, uh, we did several music videos um, for a varying range of talent where I've been able to be instrumental as a director, uh, you know, conceptualizing. I wrote a short film called Convertible. I did not direct that one. And then there are a number of other screenplays that are that have been essentially selected as finalists and things like that from the Sundance Labs or the Nichols Fellowship. That, that again, those things are in development, so they're not they're not out yet. But when they find their footing, they'll they'll, they'll come. Keep an eye out. Keep an eye no, get, you need to let us know because then we'll need to like do a follow up and have you like do an IG live and and everything so people yeah. know where to where to find all those things. What was your path in regards to, and how did you do that being in Salt Lake City? Because or is there a big film industry in that area? Were you already doing this when you were in South Carolina, South Carolina, you said? North Carolina. North Carolina. Were you already doing these types of things? Because obviously being so close to LA, a lot of people are going to LA. They're getting PA jobs or they're doing whatever they can do to get their foot in the door. And a PA, if you don't know, is a production assistant or whatever they want to do. What was your like steps to get to where you are now? You know, I always, I always go back to like being a kid and just loving cinema. You know, if that's something that you love, trust your passion, trust your drive. You know, it's something that's gonna like put you in a place that you want to be. I went to college and I, I got my degree in English. Uh, not a surprise as I was like a really avid reader and lover of, anything that had to do with poetry and with literature. Um, and I thought that that might've been the route for me. 
because I didn't have as much of a background in professional filmmaking, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, if you're ever on set and you're on like shooting a commercial, it can be really boring. I, and I think that that was kind of, I was affected in that way. And, uh, and then I got married and you got to do things like a certain way. And eventually I realized like, hey, if I'm going to live this life for the next 70 years or, you know, 50 years or whatever it is, I really want to do it doing something that I love, something that I know that I'll wake up every morning and I'm going to be ready to go, even if it's incredibly frustrating, even if like sometimes it's downright damning. You know what I mean? Um, I want to be. Able it's to- not always glamorous. I think people want to think it's always glamorous. There's an aspect of filmmaking that's um, number one. Where's the equipment? Where do you find that? Um, number two, how I many you buying your own equipment? Are you finding people that have the equipment? Are you renting the equipment? No matter what, it seems like the answer always revolves around money. And if it's not money, then what is it? What do you have to offer? Um, in my case, it was that I was a writer. So I was able to find a group of individuals once I had made that shift and basically offered my expertise, right? Which was writing, saying, hey, I know there are a lot of writers that, that are here in Utah. I know also that a lot of those writers don't have nearly as strong a voice as perhaps I do my partner does um, and that's not knocking any of the writers all the Utah writers all the writers in Boston all the writers everywhere in the states like keep writing keep going but I had enough under my belt that I could say I'm a published writer so I have several publications you know I have several you know award nominations for so many specific festivals um, or competitions as a writer so it really was kind of a quid pro quo that I had with some of these filmmakers in, in the area to put me on. And rather than put me on as the PA, when you're the writer of something and that's the leverage that you have, it was much easier to kind of attain a different position, especially where I had already had experiences in the past. Um, so you bring your mind to the table and you go, how can I spin this? How can I make this an asset for, for people that are interested in, in making cinema, um, but also for myself? So. I wrote for a director and uh, utilized that same team. They're all very good friends of mine now to find my way as a, as a filmmaker and as a director. You were talking about some of the things that are in development through this festival circuit. Have you submitted any of your previous work into the festival circuit? Because the two main things that I can think about is obviously Tribeca and Sundance. And I'm sure that there are others, but those are the two main ones I can think of. Is that a really frustrating process to try and submit or have you been able to submit anything to those things? Again, it's all about money. That's what it boils down to. People think sometimes like, oh, great. Like a filmmaker, the hardest thing I have to figure out is like the technicalities of it all. No, there are a lot of uh, hurdles. Um, One of them being like, right, I made a film for this much money, for example, because I had this much equipment at my disposal. And now that I have this, I have to edit it, blah, blah, blah. I have to color it. I have to sync sound. Once I've done all of these things, then the question is, who's going to be interested in letting this be a part of their film festival? And you have to pay to get into the film festival. It's not a free thing. It's not like, hey, check out my film. Just to apply, you have to pay? Just to apply, you have to pay. Wow. What are the fees normally for those? They vary. Sometimes they're like 50. Sometimes they're 75. Sometimes they're 80. um, Sometimes they're 150. So it really just kind of depends on like the timeline. Mm-hmm. They're open for so long. They have like the early bird and then there's like their like 
extended late. And if you're at the extended late, you're looking at like something much more expensive than the early bird. That's kind of it. And, and Noray nor do, we've like entered into a few festivals. We haven't heard back from all of them. So we don't know where that's at specifically in this moment. But Sabor, we feel very confident about in a different way, just the value of the production itself, you know, kind of the talent that we have, which I can't really talk about. But we've got some gifted performers. Some that I think will surprise people, they're like very well-known, recognizable actors that I think will put a smile on uh, the Latinx. Well, when you're ready to do like a whole combo with your cast and you, just let me know. I got you. Uh, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> okay, you guys heard that. He said I would be the first to know. <laughs> we got to keep him accountable for that. <laughs> I'll hang on that word. All right. Don't worry. I, I have your number. I have your email. <laughs> Hey, I didn't say I'd hop on. I said I'd let you know. I'm going to make sure I let you know. <laughs> you can be in L.A. It's just a little drive, you know? Yeah, I'll come through. I'll come through. I'll hit a little table read with you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. Because it starts filming in June. and July. Oh, July. And then by next summer, it should be released? Yeah, I mean, again, I say that like with a grain of salt. and I only Because things I, can always change. No, no, no. I I don't think things will. Film festival circuits take a while. So Sawod is going to hit the film festival circuits probably as early as like October, November. And that's like for entry and mm -hmm. for things that are happening in 2022. And once it starts getting in, if you're at any of those film festivals, by all means, go and watch the shorts program, take a seat and enjoy Sawod and many of the other short films that are going to be at that program. Um, but I don't know how long that festival circuit will last. What's be. the first festival of the year normally? Usually it's Sundance. Because it's in wintertime, right? Yeah, Sundance is usually like the last month of January, or the last week of January. <laughs> I'm the one drinking, yeah, you're the one saying that. I'm, Listen, I, 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 I'm, I'm sympathy drunk. I'm, <laughs> Every time I take a drink, you're like imagining I'm feeling, it. I'm feeling it, yeah. <laughs> so I think that those are like the big ones in my mind. Sundance is like obviously always a goal. Tribeca, South by Southwest, like these are going to be like a really big deal, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion, when we're thinking about the way to the film festival circuit. But it'll last anywhere between a year and three. So go to the film festivals. Right now, I think that they're doing them like virtually as well. So a lot of people like they miss out on really great films that are that are screening. There's other there's Latino film festivals too. Yeah, the New York There's one in San Diego. Huge. The San Diego one is huge. I think we even submitted to that one. Um, I think there's one in Dallas too. There's one. In, uh, there's definitely one in. I think it's I've Dallas. seen I've seen stuff for that one before when I lived there. There's a Los Angeles one. Mm -hmm. uh, Los, Angeles, Los Angeles International Film Festival, which is basically like a very Latino film festival. I think it's called the Latino Los, Los Angeles Latino. Have you guys thought about doing like once these hit the film festival, once you like know it's they're going to be in because we're going to say, yes, they're going to be in all these oh, film totally. festivals. Absolutely. Have you thought about documenting that whole process? There's something called an electronic press kit that you usually do on set. And, you know, anyway, that's that usually documents like the journey, right? Like what you're doing on set and how that looks. No, but I mean, once you actually hit this, the circuit, once you hit the film festival circuit, like, oh my gosh, now it's here. Look at all these films, like being able, even, even if you don't show anybody else, at least for yourself, right? 
I'll pull out the phone. I have some Instagram stories. I will Instagram. You'll see me on there, you know? I'll yeah. document that way. Yeah, yeah. No, you got to do it somewhere. You know, yeah, create a little yeah, folder sure. on your Instagram and yeah. just like for your film so people can yeah, cool. see the journey. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I do like a little, what are the, the little circles that they do now? Yeah, the, yeah. Little story joints. Yeah. Yeah. Then you put like festivals. Yeah, exactly. And then you have all your little, all the things. Look at that. Are you yeah. my new marketing person? Is that I do PR, on? just so you yeah, know. Are you just going to be my new PR person? I work in PR. I got you. Are you my publicist? <laughs> we, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's the route. And it's fun. No, that's so awesome. I'm just glad I'm making movies for my people. You know what I'm saying? It's so important and just kind of like taking it full circle. Like you were saying at the very beginning. It's great to have all of these stories out there because people do live these stories. People do live these. There's people that have all kinds of life. So it's great to have these other stories, but we want to have stories where our culture is not, or like immigration is not the main thing. Drugs is not the main thing, but our culture can still be an integral part of a story without being the story. So I think that you're right in regards to that because there's room for all of it. We just are not seeing the whole diaspora of it all. So I think that what you're doing is really important. I'm super excited for you. I cannot wait to like go back and see, like pull up your name and look at all of these things that you're doing on Vimeo. Play some popcorn and we'll just watch this podcast. We don't even watch the other videos. We'll just go like, let's watch the one. I'm going to be able to say like, you're going to blow up on the the circuit, on the, (laughs) you know, film festival circuit. I'll be like... Yo, I know him. <laughs> yeah. No, hey, I mean, you better be there at the San Diego one when it comes Dude, out. Dude, totally, totally, so I will be there. Appear. I won't just appear. I will be there. I will take you out to dinner. Well, I yeah. will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. look. Hey, you <laughs> there before? Okay, we're putting it. I'm holding her accountable now. Um, yes, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to dinner in San Diego. You're going to go to dinner. I look forward to. You like wine? Um, you know, I don't drink. You don't at all? At all. Okay, well, we'll get you like some grape juice. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I'll drink some wine. (laughs) Drink some grape juice. Uh, We got, we got this. I'll take you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm in downtown. So, you know. I'm about it. I'm ready for it. You show me the town. I've never been to San Diego. I've been to San Francisco. Oh, you haven't? I've never been to San Diego. Oh, I got you. I got you. You show me the town. We'll paint the whole town red. Oh, yeah. I got you then. Yeah, for sure. You got to. We'll do it. We'll do it. You know, the the other big one is the Los Angeles. Really got to show it. The Los Angeles International Film Festival. I'll go to that. I'll go to that. Are you like, you're going to get me into that, though? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, just tell me. I'm there. You guys hear me? You guys hold me accountable. We're just holding each other accountable today. We're gonna, yeah. We're, I'm just, just going to, like, every, like, the week of, I'm going to pull this up and post it and be like, remember this? Yeah, yeah. Just this snippet. Like, nothing else. <laughs> nothing like, else. specific moment. Yeah. Exactly. So I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to share anything else that you want to share in case I didn't ask it, because I've just been so fascinated by this, you know, by your whole story, by what you're doing. I think it's super important and the way that you're doing it is. So I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to stay. And before I ask you the final couple questions, if there's anything else that you want to add. 
Yeah, I mean, girl, I've just loved talking to you about all this. At the end of the day, lo que quiero dejar dicho es aquí, para la gente mía, para la gente nuestra, is remember, you are more than just that part of yourself that tells you, you know, our experiences amount to what we should be seeing that's representative. Our heroes should be every color. Our heroes should be living every kind of experience. So I hope you guys join me on that journey and uh, look out for Sabor. It's going to be yes. very strange. Oh my gosh. I can't wait. Cause what you were saying and bringing in the whole David Lynch thing, I'm like, it's going to be trippy. I know it's obviously going to be trippy. Just saying that. I forgot to ask you when I want to make sure I do ask you this, like who is your dream collaborator outside, whether it's on the acting side or whether it's on the production side, who is like, you're like, oh my gosh, I want to work with this person so bad. On the production side, probably like working with Roger Deakins. He's done everything you love. You don't know him. I don't know who that is. And I'm, yeah, you don't know that you love everything. You do. Okay, well, give me some examples. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Por favor. Oh, yeah, So he's the DP on uh, No Country for Old Men. He's the DP, director of, director of photography. He did uh, Blade Runner 2049, No Country for Old Men. He did 1917, the one that just came out recently. Pretty sure he did Saving Private Ryan. Don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. And I'm pretty sure he did Saving Private Ryan. He's, but he's done like just like the, these really big kind of films that have like this scope that's unimaginable and he's brilliant. So on the production side, definitely Roger Deakins, I'd say. And on the, I don't even think he's my style, but I would want to work with him anyway. I just, that's how much I like him. On the talent side, I'm really, you know, kind of just to perpetuate what I've been saying all along, I'd really love to work with like Gerald Jerome or with Zoe Saldana, who are both Latinx, mm-hmm. Afro-Latinx people. Um, and I would love her and her sister have a production company. I do. I'm all about it. I'll, I'll hop in there in a minute. I'll, I'll swoop. Um, <laughs> I, I'd love to work with them. I think that that would be like a blast to work with either of them um, and to try and tell a story about Afro Latinidad because that's not a story that we know like at all. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, it's real, but it's not a story that we're sitting here telling. Yeah. I think the only Afro Latinx character I've seen on screen, and I could be wrong. You know, outside of like uh, Miles Morales, has been uh, Juan in Moonlight, and he was played by Mahershala Ali. Mm-hmm. Right. But he played an Afro Latinx character. I mean, would you consider Zoe Saldana in Colombiana? Was she Afro Latinx in that film? I think so. I mean, I don't know if she was specifically what well, I thought that was the assumption of it. I don't know if they said it specifically. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, that might be another one. That might be another one. Like I said, I could be I'm wrong. surprising you, aren't I? You are, you are. You hit me like a little <laughs> bit right now. Um, <laughs> listen, all I'm really getting at is we don't see it often enough. I can only think of that many. Right now, I guess there's that film with uh, Vampires in the Bronx. Or, oh, that was so good. The yeah. one with the kids? Uh-huh, uh-huh. The, the Netflix Park movie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was so good. Uh-huh. Those kids are so talented. They're dope. They're some dope kids. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Those are like the, I can't think of many else, you know, like obviously when they see us had Gerald Jerome, but so did Moonlight and he wasn't, mm-hmm. he, he was, he wasn't playing a Latin, he's Latinx, but he wasn't playing an Afro-Latinx character. Mm-hmm. You know? Where do you think we're being most represented? Do you feel like, I mean, do you feel like, cause obviously I, I don't think it's feature films. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
No, I mean in in like on to like in media. Obviously, I don't think it's been in traditional film like movie theaters. But do you feel like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon are getting doing a good job in regards to representation? I think they are doing a good job when it comes to representation specifically. When it comes to Latinx representation, when it comes to Afro Latinx representation, that's where I, I start to go like, no, maybe not so much. Yeah. In order for me to even get like a lot of that content, I have to like watch 30 soap operas or something like that so it can just pop up on my main screen. Otherwise, I have to dig for it. You know? Yeah. That's a watcher thing, right? Like it's like, oh, we're just giving you what you watch. We're generating what you yourself pick. Mm-hmm. But again, that says to me that I like a certain genre or I like a certain type of film that we don't get representation. Oh, yeah. Like when I watch Hentified, then everything else comes up and I'm like, yes, let me start watching this so I get more of that. Yeah. So I know you don't drink. So I normally end with your favorite type of wine, but you don't have one. But I want to make sure what are your social handles, website, everything so people can reach you. Yeah, my social handles are they're really easy. I try to keep, well, I mean, they're not because my name is damn difficult. Uh, <laughs> it will be in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look at the show notes, please. Um, <laughs> it's it's uh, Gianfranco, my first name, underscore F underscore Ruiz. So Gianfranco underscore F underscore Ruiz. And it, again, it will be in the show notes. And when I promote it on social media, we'll make sure to tag you on that, all of that as well. Yeah, so people can go. And it's the same. I think uh, I think Twitter is a little different, but it's like basically the same. It's well, like, I'll, may, I'll look for it and I'll make sure to put on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's something like that. It's very much like my name. You know what I mean? Like, I, there's not a lot of Gianfranco without this reason. So. No, no. Yeah. It has been such a pleasure speaking to you. I've had so oh, much sure. fun talking to you. Oh, much fun. Okay, you guys, we're going to talk offline, but until ah. next time, adios. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated 